rambling in Havana I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this Welcome everyone, episode 55 of the Matt Jones Podcast, being recorded here in a lobby of the Hampton Inn in Pikeville, Kentucky, where people are just walking by and sort of looking at me while, because it looks like I'm just talking and it's really strange, but you know what, it's all for the sake of the of the podcast, specifically one of my favorite people uh, is a guest today, Ian Eagle from CBS Sports, love the guy, uh, record an interview with him. I just finished it just a few minutes ago, and it's, I think, excellent. Hopefully you will enjoy it. As nice a person and probably as generous a person to me and Drew over the years, and we'll talk some about that. He talks a lot about Calipari as well, so uh, that's good. Also, we hope later in the week to have Paul Feinbaum uh, join us to do a little college football preview as we get to, you know, we're just, I guess, 12 days right now from the start of U.K. football season. But this edition is sponsored by Touch of Modern. The website is touchofmodern.com. If you've listened at all, you know that Touch of Modern is is a really cool website and app. I use the app, which has all kinds of, guess what, modern gear, be it like different cool light fixtures or speakers or, you know, uh, clothes or paintings. I guarantee you if you go on it, you'll find something you like. I mean, that's just what I guarantee. You cannot look at their app. They'll have like 50 products. If you get through all 50 products and not one of them is something you're interested in, I'd be shocked. So go to touchofmodern.com or even better, download the app, uh, and then you look at your stuff, find good stuff. It is touchofmodern.com. So with that, we're going to give a call uh, here to our good friend, Ian Eagle. All right, now happy to be joined on the phone by one of I, if I, my favorite people in the media. And I know that that sounds like something you would just say, but I actually mean it in this case because he is awesome. Ian Eagle of CBS Sports, but also of everything. Ian, how are you? That's like being deemed the king of the weenies. I don't know, I don't know <laughs> if I should feel good about that. I, you, you have to clarify. I can't just be one of your favorite people. I have to be one of your what? favorite people. In the media. <laughs> Fair point. I don't see you enough to be one of my – when I see you, I always enjoy it. You were in Louisville for – I guess that was for the NCAA tournament last year, and it was a blast. It was. We went, uh, we went and there was that hippie little art fair in Louisville that we walked through to go eat, and you got to meet the mayor of Lexington. You, you were kind of like a star for a day. I, I felt like a star for a day. You, you took me through a very circuitous route. And uh, we, there were uh, street closures at one point. Uh, there was a festival going on that you completely drove around because uh, you didn't want to face all your fans at that point. <laughs> and then we got to the joint, and it was terrific. The food was great. The company was great. And I, I enjoyed my time in Louisville based on the fact that uh, you and I got to hang out. It was yeah, tremendous. it's the silver dollar. And the, the mayor of Lexington, by the way, now Ian is running for Senate. So you might have met a senator, which is very exciting. Whew, I, I'm trying to think back to that momentous occasion. <laughs> and I think I was so enthralled with my main course that I don't even remember the meeting. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, I, if I, it, I, would, I think I did some kind of breakfast slash brunch type item even though it was one thirty in the afternoon I, I just went for it you said no everything's good on the menu and i got some kind of egg cured meats and cheese dish 
Well, it, it, my buddy Sean Cantley owns that place, so I'm glad you liked it. Now, I have a ton of stuff I want to get to you know talk, get to with you because you call. Let me see if I'm right. I get this right. You call college basketball, the NBA, and the NFL. Am I right? Are those and tennis? So you have four big sports. Am I correct with that? Yeah. Yes, correct. Okay. And I actually want to go through all of them. But since this is a Kentucky one, <laughs> well, because I, I'm interested in all of them. I'm one of the few people who can legitimately say that those are like, those are really four. Well, throw, throw college football in there, and you've got my favorite sports. So let's start with college basketball for a second. You have known Cal for a long time. I mean, you you yes. knew him when he was with the Nets and and going back that far. What what have you seen are the greatest or biggest changes in John Calipari in those 20 years, or are there any? You know, Matt, I met him. I actually met him before 1996 when he got the job. I met him at UMass. He was a frequent guest on the Mike and the Mad Dog show at WFAN Radio, where I worked in New York. And at that point, you knew this guy was a rising star in the coaching ranks. Uh, not only the results on the court, but also the way he handled himself in interviews and the promotional aspect. It was it was a perfect storm uh, for for him and his career. So when it gets the net job, um, you know, three years into doing play by play for the Nets, I was young when I got the job. I was only 25, so I was a young guy. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you were that young when you started. So you, uh, Yeah. That's a, that's I, a heck of a I, job I, to get at 25, Ian. I know. I, I was really fortunate. That's a whole other story that, that we could talk about as well. But just getting that job, getting my foot in the door, I did the radio for one year, and then I moved to TV the very next year. I had done no television work whatsoever. But again, circumstances worked in my favor, and I ended up getting the job. So the second year on television was Calipari's first year as the head coach. The team was a mess at that point. Uh, they uh, were struggling for wins. They were struggling in terms of identity within the New York marketplace. They wanted Rick Pitino. Uh, that, was, that was their desire. And there was a faction that thought they could get him. And it didn't happen, as we know. And John Calipari ended up, I don't know if he was the second choice, but he was on a, on a list, and his name popped up and was mentioned a few times to the president at the time, Michael Rowe, and the ownership group, which were seven individuals. That, that was the other part of the issue. You had seven different successful guys that own this team together in a consortium and to get them to agree on, on anything, you know, what toilet paper they were going to put in the, in the bathrooms at the Meadowlands was, was a tough chore. I would assume they to all had egos. Agree. They all probably had large egos. That would be very, I can't, I can't, that would be very difficult, I would think. Yeah, that, it just wouldn't work. In this day and age, it wouldn't work. This was back in the 80s and 90s where maybe you could get away with it. And there's a reason why the Nets were not consistently successful. They had little flashes here and there but they couldn't build any consistency. Calipari takes this job, and I think people were a little surprised. It, it felt a little early for, for him to be able to make that jump. He had been successful at UMass. He takes the job, and not only does he get the head coaching job, but he's in charge of the whole enchilada. Yeah, that was the amazing part. They made him the GM, right? 
Matt, Matt, he got everything that Rick Pitino supposedly wanted, and he got it. That's amazing. And at that point, yeah, Pitino's resume was stronger at that point. And uh, I think because he had the background in the NBA, uh, it was a little more of uh, a logical choice. Cal was, he was a reach, but there was something about him. There was something about his personality that you believed he was going to be able to turn this thing around. The first year did not go well. Didn't go well on a number of fronts. Didn't go well from a basketball standpoint. Didn't go well uh, from a transitional standpoint of him getting the NBA game down and how the dynamic with the players would go. It was a bit of a struggle. The next year, it shifted. He found a, a real connection with Sam Cassell. Yeah. And I, I think... Matt, truly, that was what led to the success of the team that year. They had talent. Uh, there was talent developing. John did a very good job with that talent. And I think a lot of his bravado worked in his favor at that point. And he put a lot of faith in Cassell. And from there, uh, the team had a chance, had a chance to compete to the point where Michael Jordan and the Bulls were impressed with the Nets. They played him in the first round. The general feeling was it was the beginning of something, uh, that you could see the the early stages of, of this team becoming legitimate. But as we know, it never materialized. So he did. Was he there one more year after that and then and then lost it? Is that, am I right? Yeah. Uh, it was a lockout season the year after, and that didn't help him either. Again, poor timing. Uh, so the season doesn't get underway uh, when it was supposed to in 1998. They have a shortened season. First game of the season, Sam Cassell goes down with an injury in Atlanta. Kendall Gill gets into a fight with Steve Smith. Steve Smith's one of the nicest human beings (laughs) you'll ever meet. Kendall Gill's a great guy as well, but something happened. I've talked to Steve about it because I've worked with him since. I said, hey, what happened? He goes, man, I don't know. Kendall and I were close. We knew each other well. Uh, There was a fight that was brewing, and I kind of got in there and I, yeah, I was talking with Kendall as if, Hey, we're good to go. And then he just snapped on me and they met after the game, uh, down in the back. It wasn't even at the, uh, at Phillips arena. They were playing at the Georgia dome for a year or two when, when they were redoing their arena. And it was strange. The whole feeling was ominous and the team really struggled. And at that point, it was one of the stranger. I mean, this is this is how the story goes. This is again maybe folklore, but this is what I remember, and, and this is pretty amazing to think. The team was in Miami. They lose. They're told uh, basically that uh, they're supposed to get on the plane and fly to Toronto. They yeah. do. At that point, there's a change in ownership. Lewis Katz takes over as the main owner, along with Ray Chambers. The story goes that he fired John Calipari. Calipari then leaves, but doesn't say goodbye to the team. Just the timing was off, and he didn't say goodbye to the team at that moment. He leaves the arena. The team flies to Toronto. The next morning, the team is having a session, and this was already set up with 
motivational speaker Tony Robbins. Familiar with him? <laughs> of course, yeah. The yeah. He's, I mean, I always thought he was a huge fraud, but I guess it worked. It yeah. Maybe it worked. Tony Robbins comes in for a morning session with the team and says to them, guys, dealing with adversity, this is part of life. This is part of basketball, part of sports. Your head coach has been fired. And now they look around and go, what? Oh, they so they found out Cal got fired from Tony Robbins. That that has always been that is the rumor behind the scenes. That's that amazing. There was I did such not know a, that. a lack of communication at that point that Tony Robbins informed the majority of the players that John Calipari had been let go. That is crazy. That's a great story. Well, let me ask you this. Okay, so two things. One, I've always wondered why you think. Cal has become this notion of a player's coach. Players love him, and I think that's true at Kentucky. So I was always surprised that it seemed like, with the exception of his relationship with Sam Cassell, that that sort of bond did not exist in New Jersey. So A, am I right about that, and if so, why? And then B, Cal, I've been told, and I think this is correct, Really, really did not get along and did not like Jason Williams. Not the not Jay Williams, but the Jason Williams that at the time was considered to be a prankster. Like he would always be like he seemed like this funny guy. Now, of course, he ended up getting indicted and he someone died at his house and all that. But during his prime, I, I used to think he was such a funny guy. He must be awesome. And I've I've heard people say that it's like Cal's least favorite person he's ever coached. How did that happen? So I guess my question would be first, players in general, and then on the Cal Jason Williams, just from your perspective, why does Cal yeah. hate him so much? So so what do you think? Yeah, my my recollection, and I knew Jason very well. Um, Jason was a prankster. Jason was a very funny guy. Uh, Jason was a very strong personality on that team, on the bus, in the locker room. Uh, it, well, it was also at a time where Jason was looking to get paid yeah. and uh, had some juice because he developed a skill in the NBA that few guys could do as well as him, and that was rebound the ball. You had Dennis Rodman yeah, and, and you him. had Jason Williams. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Those two guys were the best at what they did, non-scorers that could affect the game based on their rebounding and their effort and uh, their toughness. With that said, uh, Jason was very free and easy with his personality and putting his fingerprints on anything that was going on. And uh, coach be damned, it it didn't matter to him. Yeah. Uh, He and Cal did not see eye to eye from day one. I don't think Cal found him particularly entertaining. (laughs) While he may have acknowledged that he was funny and he could be comedic. Uh, Jason's timing was such that he didn't care if somebody else had the floor. Yes. Uh, Jason was just that way. That's how he was wired. Now, we know that there was tragedy in Jason's life. It went way too far. Uh, shooting a limo driver, killing that a limo driver, Gus Christoffi in New Jersey, and uh, his life has never been the same. Uh, and he has never been the same. Uh, Jason, at the core was a very good man uh, with a kind soul uh, that had a lot of demons, a lot of problems in his life. Um, his sister who had died of AIDS. Yes, I remember that. It was drug addiction. And it was terrible things that happened. 
uh, during his childhood does not excuse what took place on that night. And I think you would be the first to tell you that uh, he made a tragic mistake that, that changed the course of his life. Yeah. How it pertained to Cal uh, at that point, Matt, you hit it on the head. They butted heads right away, and Jason's influence was so strong. And look, we've all been in situations where uh, there's somebody that can change the entire dynamic of a room. Jason was that type of guy. And as Cal is trying to learn the NBA ropes, he's trying to set parameters, he's trying to get a feel for personnel, personalities, he could not corral Jason Williams. And it had a far-reaching effect. There's no doubt in my mind uh, that that it had a domino effect on Calipari's head coaching career in the NBA. It's so fascinating to me that, you know, these two figures, because it's interesting to see, to hear you say that, because I've heard, I mean, I've heard Cal speak a little bit about it, but I've heard a lot of people close to Cal sort of talk about the Jason Williams effect. And there are people who say to you, look, Cal could win at the in the NBA. It didn't happen at New Jersey. Cal has matured. And then the, a lot, the second or third thing somebody will say is this Jason Williams effect. Do you think that's pot, that that might be true? And do you think Cal could win today if he wanted to in the NBA? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, Cal has grown a lot as a coach, as a person, uh, as a leader since those days. And we're talking literally 20 years ago now. And he has evolved into one of the great coaches in, in sports. I think even then, anybody associated with the Nets, even during the struggles of that lockout short in 1998-99 season, even when he was fired, everybody around the team knew the guy was going to be successful. It just wasn't going to be there. So it was not the right place. It was not the right time. It was not the right people around him. You know, I think the other part, too, and, and look, you know, John has had incredible success, uh, Hall of Fame career. Even Hall of Famers can look back and say, huh, maybe I would have done that differently. Yeah, maybe I, I would have right. handled that a little better. Uh, his, his support group was not as strong as it should have been. In this day and age, it never would have happened. Um, Brad Stevens, who was an excellent college coach and was probably at a similar point in his career that Cal was when Cal got the net job and Stevens got the Celtic job. Brad was not handed the keys to the entire organization. Brad also needed to bring on some veterans for the bench. They didn't just assume, hey, yeah, whoever you want is, is good with us. But John was allowed to surround himself with his people. And sometimes you do need checks and balances. And the one thing that stands out back in the 96, 97, 98 stretch for Cal is there were no checks and balances. So when, when it went south, there was nobody there that could back him. He had unfortunately alienated so many people within the front office that other coaches may be saved. At that point, uh, nobody was willing to throw him the life preserver. Interesting. Well, let me ask you about college basketball in general. You don't do a ton of games. You do a few, and then you do the tournament. So, But you've gotten to go, I would think, to most of the best uh, places out in college yeah. basketball. So 
when you think college basketball and you look back and you say, okay, where are the places you like to go the most and don't feel like you have to say Lexington even though you're on my podcast, <laughs> but where, where are the places where you go, okay, I'm excited to go here for a game? Okay, let's put Lexington to the side just for a moment. Okay. Uh, because you you know it's going to be in this group, and and I've been really fortunate in that I have done a lot of games. Yes, you have. There was that one stretch when you started the blog. I was doing what felt like at least two Kentucky games a year in Lexington. Yes, over a three four year period. Well, that's partially so how we I became friends, like, as I would see you at all it, of those games. So yeah, yeah. I I think I want to say the first time that we finally broke through was in Syracuse. Yes, well that's what it was. The, well that's I'll tell that story Wall real run. quick. I'll tell that story real quick. You're you're the, you're sitting there, you're in Syracuse during the John Wall run. I'm with Drew. Why well, and Drew is off doing something. And all of a sudden I start talking to you and I'm like, this dude's hilarious. And you were you were very nice. See, like you did something that very few people do, which is you were a national presence who, whether you knew much about me or not, you acted like you did, and at the time that made me feel really good because no one, you know, no one at, at that point, no one knew who I was, and you did, and it was very nice. So I'm talking to you, and I go back to Drew, and I go, "Hey, Drew, this dude's hilarious." He's like, "I an eagle." I was like, "I'm telling you, he's hilarious." And he walk, we walk over, and you. <laughs> I said, Drew, this is Ian Eagle. And you just, what did you say? You used some phrase. You were like, hey, Drew, are you riding the white pony or something ridiculous? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think that's in my vernacular. You know what you said? I'm telling you, you said something like making some joke, like this joke about, you know, being some, like you were a drug lord or something. And Drew, to this day, still says he's never laughed harder at a media member just seeing you, and that was your intro to him. And so uh, we became friends because I thought – but you couldn't have been nicer, and I think that's a testament to how good a guy you are. Well, what what I remember is having a really good conversation with you at the Dome and then getting a bunch of Kentucky games over the next that's several yeah. years. So, yeah, then we would see each other, obviously, in Lexington or if we would see one another during an NCAA tournament run or an SEC tournament, whatever it might be. And for me, going into Kentucky – I always kind of built it up in my head based on my experience as a fan, yes. uh, watching Kentucky games and imagining what it might be. Uh, what I obviously realized was the passion. I understood that part of it. Oh, you're going to say you were disappointed, was, right? No, 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 no. Here's the thing that, that struck me. When I'd been doing NBA, and before I got the college basketball assignments. I had been in the NBA then for a few years and I had done some playoff games. I was fortunate enough to call the NBA finals on the world feed. So I had done uh, Seattle against Chicago. I had done Orlando against Houston. I had done uh, Chicago against Utah, the Jordan, uh, Brian Russell game. Yeah, of course. In, in some incredible scenes. You know, Salt Lake City at that point, when they thought they had a chance to win a championship, they were geared up. What I don't think I realized was uh, how much of an event it is. Each college basketball game in certain cities, and Lexington is one of those cities that qualifies, where the whole community 
response. I'm yeah. not just paying your lip service. There really is something to that. That's organic. That's real. You can't make that up. You can't invent it or create it or try to ratchet it up each game. That's real. There are places that have a similar feel to that. If you go into Lawrence, Kansas. Correct, yes. Time stops for that two-plus-hour period. Time stops. That's the only thing that matters. I grew up in New York. A big Met game, a big Yankee game, or Nick game, Ranger game, Net game, Jet Giant. It's not going to stop time in New York. Other things are happening. Many other things are happening at the same time. That's, to me, what the difference is on uh, the bigger stages of, of college hoops. So Lawrence, Kansas comes to mind. That is a place I really enjoy doing games. I, I just feel as if well, it's, it's the it's the it's level. the best in arena atmosphere in the country. I mean, it just is. I wish it was. It's number one. It's number one. It's number I mean, one. it just is. There's nothing like it. I mean, I think a lot of Kentucky fans, when I would say that, would get mad. But after Kentucky played there last year and people watched that game, they kind of now go, "All right, I guess that's right." There's just nothing like it. No, it's number one, uh, and it's hard to match it. And I've been to Duke, and Duke is tremendous, and it would be in the top five. I do think a lot of that has been uh, based on the traditions that have been passed on from, from year to year to year. But the thing about Duke is that there are some years where it's better than others. It yes, can vary based on the students. The difference with Kentucky, it's not based on the students. It's not based on the student body. It's based on the community as a whole. And that's where I think you distinguish between the incredible atmospheres, the fantastic electric atmospheres, and the ones that are uh, certainly in the top five or top ten. I went to Syracuse. Look, when Syracuse was playing Georgetown during my four years, I went from 1986 to 1990, uh, I, would, I would dare someone to try to, to match the feeling inside the dome over those four years and then probably extending a bit the next two or three years. And then things die down as, as they do and uh, rivalries evolve and the ebb and flow might change. But during that four or five, six year period, it was incredible. But again, the students have to be a part of it. And with Syracuse, that kind of dips in and out and you lose a lot of the feeling, the general vigor inside the arena because it's so big. Yeah, it's, no, you do. That, that's the problem there. It's too. It's too big. Is there one? Is big. is there a school that you go to that? Okay, so everybody thinks of Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, Indiana. Is there a school though that you go to and you go, oh, now that's an atmosphere that doesn't get credit. Like people don't realize what a good atmosphere that is. Yeah, Oregon is very good. Okay, I would tell you that Eugene is is excellent. Now, a lot of it is based on the fact that the students are literally inches from the broadcast table, so. You can feel their presence behind you, physically feel them behind you. And you put the headset on, and the cacophony of sound is just bouncing back and forth through the microphone into the headset and then back out the microphone again. But Oregon is, is very loud. It's, it's very good. Maybe that's the one that doesn't pop up quite as often, but the times that I've been there, maybe three or four times in my CBS career, I've always been impressed with with Eugene. All right. 
before I'm going to take a little break here just for two things. Number one, just to tell you, if you get a chance, subscribe to the uh, Kentucky Sports Radio podcast. All right, the Kentucky Sports Radio podcast is the one that our football podcast is on, Tyler Thompson's podcast is on, and this year, Freddie Maggard is going to be doing individual previews of each team we play. So it's Kentucky Sports Radio. Of course, this is the Matt Jones podcast. That is under Kentucky Sports Radio. The app's got like a little ball, yellow ball with headphones on. Subscribe to that one and uh, make sure you do it. The other thing is we are looking for, for the football podcast and for this podcast, we'd like to have local sponsors. I mean, we have a lot of good national sponsors, but we want some local ones too. If you're interested, uh, watch. I'll be sending out a message telling you how to do that. So uh, uh, make sure make sure to contact us because we'd love to have you on the, on the podcast. With that said, Harry's has been our best sponsor throughout because they've been with us forever. Harry was founded by two friends. And they were they were buddies, um, and let's just say their names were like Bert and Blake. All right, and so Bert and Blake wanted to offer guys a great shave at a fair price. They owned the factory in Germany where they made the blades, or and they went and they decided, you know what, we're going to make these blades ourselves. We're going to sell them online at half the price, and we're going to make a lot of money. And guess what? It's worked for Bert and Blake, and that's what Harry's has done, and it makes it to where you get the best shave at the best price. Five blade razors with a softer flex hinge for a more comfortable glide, and the blade helps you reach hard-to-reach places with a lubricating strip. It's all excellent. So if you go to harrys.com, it's $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MATT. That's right. $5 off your first purchase, promo code MATT. It's only $15, so $5 off, it's $10. Harrys.com, help Bert, help Blake, help Harry, help the podcast. Promo code MATT at harrys.com. Now, back to it. All right, I want to ask you about your announcing for a second because I think the thing that's great about you, you have such a dry wit that if you watch a game that Ian Eagle calls and you pay attention to what he says, he's saying really funny things. And some of your folks that you work with get that. So, like, you play great with <laughs> Mike Fratello um, on the Nets games. And Bill Raftery, I think you and he have a good uh, back and forth. And then there have been a couple guys where I don't think it's worked, and we won't. I won't make you call those folks out. But let me say, what is the difference for you when you're doing a game with somebody where it's clicking, like you and Fratello, it seems like you're just you're giving each other a hard time. It's great. And then the times that you've had guys where it's just not the same, like how do you – what's the difference for you? Uh, on a personal level, not much, believe it or not. The preparation is still the same. I don't think twice about saying something that I might find amusing. But you might get crickets, and that's that's okay too. <laughs> and that's the worst. That are, that's the worst, though. It's like what what Tariko yeah. used to do to Kornheiser. He'd make jokes, and it would just be crickets. And you'd go, "Come on, Mike, yeah. throw him a bone." It's like, yeah, I understand. I understand. But I, you know, my father was a stand-up comedian, and I was really fortunate during my my younger years and formative years to get a chance to watch him perform. And his act was always the same. He didn't vary his act. Occasionally he would adjust things. He would move things around based on the audience. But for the most part, he was going to do what he always did. And didn't he do commercials in Lexington? Do I remember that correctly? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he was, he was big down in Lexington as well. He, he did a a commercial, did 50 commercials, but the most famous one, he, he played the Xerox monk, brother Dominic. Uh, it was the first ad that used any kind of religious figure in television history. And the tagline was, it's a miracle. You could go on YouTube and 
and check it out. Just type in Brother Dominic Xerox commercial. It's a very famous commercial. He ended up making a bunch of them for Xerox. But because of his background as a stand-up comedian, as an actor, he ended up working for Xerox on the road at its height for 210, 220 days a year in the monk outfit. And he would visit Kinko's <laughs> or large corporations that would bring in Xerox machines. If if Chrysler at their home offices brought in Xerox machines, well, guess who would show up? Brother Dominic <laughs> and great. would entertain Lee Iacocca and, and the rest of, of the organization. So having watched him for all those years, and I would see things that would work some nights, didn't work other nights. And afterwards, we'd drive home, and we'd spend time, or we'd grab dinner after, and I'd ask him questions. I'm talking about when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And I would relive some of the act with him, and out of curiosity, I would say, well, why do you think that worked? Why didn't that work? He said, hey, I'm going to do my thing. And at times, the audience is going to get it. At times, they're not, but they might get it later on, or they'll catch up, or they'll get the rhythm. So for me... Not to say that I don't adjust. Of course I do. You adjust based on who you're working with. And, and I think part of my philosophy from the beginning has been, how do I get the most out of this person? Yes. Uh, some of your analysts can rally with you verbally and can do the levity part of the, the broadcast and get it and and just react naturally. And others can't. But that doesn't mean they can't do a good job. They just come at it from a different angle. So I don't really, I don't adjust or change how I'm doing the game. If I get some crickets, that's okay, as long as I can skillfully make the transition back to the action and not allow it to become uncomfortable or awkward over the course of the broadcast. One of the things I've envied about you from afar is that you have such a varied career, okay? I mean, like in today's world where it feels like, okay, everybody gets sort of narrowly cast into you're going to do this sport. You do the, the wide range that I mentioned, but it also strikes me in talking to you that a lot of that's just been random, right? Like you get an assignment and then you get it again the next time. I don't think people realize how random sort of that business business can be. Would you, would you say, I mean, you're obviously extremely talented, but the ability to do all these different sports, some of that has been kind of randomness. Oh, completely, completely. And my willingness to say yes, yes. Uh, say more than anything else, Matt, uh, because early on at CBS, I was low man on the totem pole and things would trickle down to me based on the fact that others couldn't do it or couldn't fit into their schedule. And my automatic response was yes. So when they called and said, uh, well, you do boxing, right? <laughs> it's a leading question, isn't it? <laughs> I said, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I do the hell out of boxing. I had never, had never done a boxing match. Yes, so, I do the hell out of boxing. Like, I do yeah, it I do so much, of, yes. And you know what happened? It's a quick story, but I got asked to do four fights for CBS. This was in 2000. Believe it or not, Dan Deardorff was the play-by-play guy. <laughs> really? That's boxing. Weird. Yeah. Yeah, from, from ABC to CBS, but he couldn't do them. Uh, I think maybe one of his kids was getting married one of the weekends. He had another event the other weekend and they didn't want to split up the package so they called me with that question the leading question you do boxing right i said yeah absolutely they get great yeah four fights here you go so i hang up the phone and i think to myself wow i 
I have no background in boxing whatsoever, other than having been a fan and had watched fights growing up. I called a producer, Mike Arnold, who's now the director for the number one NFL team on CBS with Jim Nance and Phil Sims every week and does the Super Bowl. I said, hey, can you send me hours of boxing tape from CBS's archives? He said, yeah, no problem. Tim Ryan, Gil Clancy, I must have watched, I don't know, 60 hours of tape. This is pre-YouTube and all of the available stuff you have on the Internet. I prepare, I get ready, and the executive producer at the time, Terry Ewart, the first fight is happening in Vegas. He happened to be there for a convention. He wasn't going to be there for the fight. He just happened to be there for a convention. He calls me. He invites me to lunch the day of the fight. We sit down for lunch at the MGM Grand, and he says, so uh, yeah, tell me about your, your background in boxing. And <laughs> the, fight's in, the fight's happening in four and a half hours. It was David Tua against Obed Sullivan. And I'm not going to lie to the guy. No one, no one specifically asked me about my experience. They just asked if I did boxing, and I said I did. And I said, well, you know, Terry, uh, just want to be honest with you here. I said, I've... I've never done a fight. And he looks <laughs> Funniest at me and thing. He says, what? Yeah. He says, really? I said, yeah. I said, look, uh, I want to be, I want to be up front on, on, on all of this. I said, I've never been to a fight. <laughs> Which was true. I had never been to a boxing match. And now I actually see like little beads of sweat forming on the part of your skin above your lip, but just below your nose that area. And he says, really? I said, look, I want to be completely frank with you. I've never been in a fight. Which was not completely true because in fifth grade, I don't know if this ever happened to you, Matt, but in fifth grade, it was uh, just a normal day, like one o'clock in the afternoon. Someone came up to me and said, Hey, I heard you're fighting James Schneff later after school. Yes. He's tough. I was like, yeah, I went, what? Really? I'm fighting James Schneff? What, what are you talking about? And I had to fight the guy at the at the end of school. Did you take him? It was snowing Split out. Split decision. I, I, I threw one no, I threw one punch, I hit him on the chin, he went down and I walked home. Oh and really? Was, and he was much bigger than me. Yeah, I don't think he expected it. And that So are you like it. Seinfeld? You refuse to you like you refuse to fight now? Like oh, you get to one? Yes. Oh. I choose not to I run. To That's what you do? Okay, I, cho- I like I, that. I choose not to fight. <laughs> so and he says, Well, what are you doing here? I said, well, no, it's good. I'm prepared. Don't worry about it. He goes, oh, okay. We do the fight. It goes, well, actually, the fight that we did went like a minute 48. David Tua knocked out Obed Sullivan. And, you know, one part, have you ever been to a boxing match? I've never been, no. Well, I've been to like, I've been to like brawls in small towns, like in like the armory and stuff, but not like a real fight. Yeah. So when I sit down for the first fight, uh, I don't understand, like, everyone's got a piece of cardboard or paper on top of their drinks. I don't understand if this is boxing tradition. I'm not really sure what to make of this. And Obed Sullivan gets caught just in front of me within the first 45 seconds of the fight and gets hit in the face. And at that point, bodily fluids are flying (laughs) right onto my notes, onto my shirt, my tie, and you guessed it, right into my drink. I go, oh, that's why you covered it. Why you covered it? Yeah, now I, I get it. So I ended up doing four fights. After the fight, Terry came up to me. He goes, I, I think uh, you're, were you 
joking with me? I, no, I wasn't joking with you. Oh, it sounded like you knew what you were doing. Uh, you figure it out. You say yes, and then from there, if you have enough confidence in your abilities, you figure it out. I've done that with track and field. I've done that with golf. I've done that with volleyball. What's the weirdest that's, event you've ever called? What's the we- like? There's got to be one you look back and you go, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. My first TV assignment was three-on-three basketball tournament. Oh, I wouldn't nice. call that <laughs> three on that three. weird. It was hoop it up. Oh, okay. I've three on those. three. Yeah. Hoop it up. I played in one uh, of those so once, actually. Yes, you didn't. There call, you, go. you didn't call and that one. I don't think I called that one unless you were in the Long Island division. I don't believe that yeah. uh, that you were part of my my assignment. But I had to do interviews as well with with family members. They wanted to promote the brand of Hoop It Up. So my last interview of the day on the first broadcast that I did was with the Wilson family, and it was the father, his three sons. And the wife, we're all there. So I asked the dad about it. He said, oh, we, we love playing and hoop it up. It's great for the family. I asked the oldest brother, Mike, Mike, what's it been like for you? He said, well, I really enjoy the competition. It's my third year. I hope to do it again next year. The middle son, Chris, I asked him about his first year competing. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I think uh, this will be the, the start of something special. Then they were holding the youngest brother, Danny, and they're cradling him. He was about, I'd say, two and a half or three. Yes. And I don't know why. I just decided that I was going to go for it. I, yeah. I said, Danny, how about you? What do you think of Hoop It Up? And I stick the microphone in his face, and on live television, he just sticks out his middle finger <laughs> on, on both hands. So I he love went it. double barrel. He double barrel. And the producer's now in my earpiece going, Get out! Abort! Abort! And I, I just turned to the camera. I said, well, we're hoop it up. The Wilson family thinks it's number one. <laughs> oh, that's Back a good line. You. That's a good... You yeah, know, well, in the YouTube yeah. day, like yeah. nowadays, that would have oh, been like the biggest thing in the world. I mean, if only someone still had the tape. Deadspin. Yes, that would yeah, have been huge. That has been front page Deadspin. So, yeah, I did that. And, you know, recently I, I did this. Uh, this assignment for the Colbert show, which was a little. Oh, that was great! Well. You did the. Uh, it was like Colbert versus a guy playing video games versus what was the other thing? It was uh, track team, the Columbia track. The team. Columbia track team. Yes, I, I enjoyed that. You are, are you? Maybe you get to be Colbert's Marv Albert, like with Dave Letterman. <laughs> you, that, that could be could be your future. Just I hope your career doesn't have the little. <laughs> you know, side link thing that Marv did. But, but hey, who am I to judge? I'm open to all options. All right, going to take a break just for a second for Vistaprint.com. Look, I mean, you've at this point, you've heard me talk about Vistaprint so much, you're probably like, Matt, I get it, Vistaprint. But you know what? 500 business cards from 999 is that good of a deal. If you're a small business and you want to be able to get the word out, business cards are great. You meet somebody, you hand it, they remember. It's, it's exactly what you want. Vistaprint supports small business owners. Home, office needs, whatever they have, they've got it at Vistaprint. And 500 business cards, $9.99. But they also have other stuff, flyers, banners, postcards, apparel, invitations. It's all there. They'll ship it to you, and then they guarantee you'll like it. If you don't like it, they'll fix it. The quality is great. They're easy to customize, and with the promo code MATT, you get 50% savings. It's promo code MATT at checkout, M-A-T-T. That supports the podcast. 500 business cards, $9.99 at Vistaprint. Now let's get back to Ian. Now, you a lot of people ask me sometimes, Matt, how did you and Drew get involved in tennis? And the answer is you. 
I think I went to you at one point and said, hey, you know, I'd like to do something besides Kentucky sports all the time. And you said, and all of a sudden you were like, what about tennis? And you contacted the tennis channel and we ended up doing three U.S. Opens, I think. Uh, we did Indian Wells a couple times, Cincinnati a couple times, really enjoyed it. Uh, so I appreciated that from you, from you, and and you, you used to always get like a sort of comical look on your face when you would see us at tennis tournaments. Like you, all, I think it always just amused you that we were there. Am I right? Oh, I was, I was, I was thoroughly amused by it. But the the real interesting part to me is that you impressed the people over there so much because you came at it from a completely different angle, and uh, that's that's to me what this is all about. Uh, When you get opportunities to try different sports or try different assignments, you have to bring yourself to it. You can't be a robot. You can't be a machine. And what you and Drew did was you brought your personalities and your ideals and your perspectives to it. And it was just something that that they had not seen before. And I think they were really happy with it. It was very successful, but it, it satisfied your curiosity as well. For me, It's not a world that I live in all the time. Um, There were years where I did more of it because CBS had the U.S. Open and had some events, Cincinnati and Miami, Uh, but CBS is no longer in the tennis game. ESPN really dominates the sport now. Tennis Channel has maintained some of the tournament, so I I get to do the French Open, which I've done the last 10 or 11 years. I, I find it really different. It's very different than what I'm accustomed to, and the big reason why is the analysts. All of the analysts come from an individual sport background. All the other sports that I work consistently, the analysts were parts of a team at some point in their life, football team, basketball team, whatever it might be. Tennis players were individual entities. The game was played out on the court, yes, but the mental part of the game was such a huge factor, you against your opponent on that given day. And because of that, I don't know if tennis analysts by nature are used to being on a team. They've never really been in that kind of setting. So on the broadcast side, it is about being on a team. And it's been uh, very eye-opening to see the adjustments of a lot of really talented people that they have to make to, to be part of that collaborative effort. It is when weird because it's not just you. Because like McEnroe is considered to be, you know, one of the best sports analysts in any sport. And I actually think that's yep. true. But then, you know, we we worked a lot with the tennis channel people and like I could not tolerate Justin Gimmelstab. I thought he was such a jerk to us. But what was weird was as bad as he was, I found a lot of the actual players I am to be some of the nicest people. Like Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal were massive stars, still are, but when we were doing it, we're massive stars, and we would stop them and they would just talk to us. Like Drew did a Photoshop of Rafa, like, you know, fishing in the Mediterranean, and I guess someone had showed it to him, and he, like, said, oh, that was hilarious. I mean, these are two major stars. It's not the kind of thing that would yeah. happen with LeBron or with, you know, D- Derek Jeter or whatever. So that's it was weird to me because I found on the announcer side, with the exception of you, people to kind of be really rude, but yet on the player side, people seemed crazy nice. Was that just because Federer and Nadal are, are super nice, or, or what do you think? 
Uh, well, I mean, first of all, obviously, my experience with the announcers has been different. Yeah, no, I understand. I mean, they were they were. I'm there not, was a I, bonding I, process. I'm not putting that on you, by the way. I'm just saying that. No, no, I I know that. Uh, Justin Justin's a great guy. He's a really talented guy that has a lot of different interests, and I do think with anybody that does on air stuff, you got some that have a certain process, and this is how they do it, and not him in particular, but everybody has a way and when they don't necessarily know people and they don't know what the angle is, they tend to shy away. And I do think on the tennis side, because of that uh, background that I talked about earlier, you see that often. Uh, these are not, these are not individuals that were accustomed to being part of a larger entity throughout their playing career. The playing side of it, things have changed. Uh, there's no doubt. Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal have had so much success. And now you throw Novak Djokovic into the mix as well, Andy Murray. I find all four of those guys to be extremely likable and very much at ease and comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not surprised that you had that experience with those two in particular. And I also think because you weren't tennis guys that, were walking around them as if it was rarefied air. You were trying to do a job, and again, you were coming at it from a different angle. You probably elicited a different kind of response that some of the guys on the beat have not been able to do because they haven't been able to break through with them on that level. Uh, it, it just was it was a really, really nice marriage, although it was short-lived, that you got to do that stuff, and... And I think uh, both sides benefited. Well, I loved it, and hopefully we'll get to do it again. I mean, the only reason we haven't is the the schedule of the Open changed to make it harder for us to go because it's now during the beginning of football season. It, it once it when it yep. kind of pushed back, but uh, I enjoyed it. It was funny though at the U.S. Open every year they never uh, Tennis Channel would never get us media seats, so we would just have to sit in the cafeteria and like. <laughs> Drew and I would just sit all two weeks in the cafeteria. Drew once famously said, he looked at me, we'd been there four days, and he goes, I don't think I've even seen a tennis match. I mean, we're at the U.S. Open. But, you know, that's what you you end up doing. Which of the the sports do you enjoy doing the most? You know, that's that's tough to answer, Matt, because I get into my routine, and I'm doing so many – different events over the course of a week. There are certain weeks where I'm doing five games. I'm doing three net games, a football game on the radio on Thursday, and then a football game on Sunday. And there have been years where I've done college basketball in addition to that, based on the schedule in, in late December. So for me, it's being able to compartmentalize and making sure that I'm completely prepared for each event that I'm calling. That's the one thing that I can honestly say based on whether it was my father's process or something that I've taught myself, getting ahead and not procrastinating, uh, making sure that I have got everything set up and my ducks are in a row before I get on that plane or before I show up to that arena. I would not be able to sleep at night if I felt like I hadn't done the necessary research and the necessary background and uh, boards that I need to do to prepare for these games. Uh, For me, and and this is not to minimize any of the assignments, I'm, I'm incredibly appreciative of all the stuff that I do, 
But to pick out one to say, I love the NBA, but man, when I'm doing the NFL, I really do love everything that I do. And I hope it comes across on the air because that's, that's not artificial. That's real. Uh, when I call the games, I want to be there. I'm not showing up because I was told I had to be somewhere on a Tuesday night. Do you, I mean, I think everybody's nature is to be sort of uh, competitive. And I've noticed like online, you're sort of everyone's favorite online. I mean, everybody online sort of thinks like, you know, the the Iron Eagle team should be higher up on the totem pole at times. And you've continued to, to, to grow on those. Do you, uh, do you like have a goal to call a Super Bowl, or is there something out there that sort of drives you that you would like to do, or are you just sort of happy with with what you've done? Yeah, I would say combination. As the years have gone by, uh, the competitive nature isn't what it once was. I think there was a time where I was very much driven by moving up the rankings and getting better assignments and making sure that uh, I was being treated fairly in the grand scheme of, of the announcing world. And then somewhere along the line, not to say that uh, you don't think about those things, you realize that you're doing all the things that you want to do. Your competitiveness is with yourself. Yeah. Trying to make sure that you're doing the best that you can do each game, every game that when a big call comes around, that you're on top of it, that you're in the moment, uh, you're not somewhere else mentally. I think doing the NBA has helped me in many ways in that there can be a major highlight in the NBA at any moment, at any moment. So if you're the guy that's going to get stuck looking at his notes or daydreaming or not giving it your all in the moment, it's now there forever. You can't redo your call. It doesn't work that way. So it's put me at a point where I feel like I'm always ready. And that comes with pressure and stress and angst because you don't want to miss the moment and you want to be able to frame it correctly and you want to choose your words effectively and efficiently. But you can't script these things. These things happen spontaneously. And because the NBA is so quick, up and down the floor, back and forth, uh, it's forced me to be on alert uh, with all the sports that I call and with all of the events, even if it's uh, Tuesday night, the Nets and the Sacramento Kings. You could have you could have boogie. A you got boogie. How could you not want from DeMarcus, DeMarcus Cousins, Cousins? Yes, ripping down the backboard and the stanchion. And if you're not on top of it and you're focused on something else then the moment has passed you by. Uh, so that's, to me, that that's a, a big part. The other part, too, Matt, and I've always felt this way, but I feel it more so than ever before. I've been doing this a long time, yet I don't go into a game assuming that people know who I am or what I've done or what other games I've called or my reputation. So... I know that someone's watching the game that I'm doing. They've never heard of me. They don't know my name. Maybe the voice sounds somewhat familiar, but they haven't formed an opinion. They're going to form one. Sports fans form opinions very quickly, certainly with announcers. They, within 15 or 20 seconds, whether they verbally articulate it or they just think it, I like this guy or 
I don't like this guy. Yeah. That means you've got to be your best all the time. As cliche as that sounds, you've got to be there with your A game at all times. And that's what keeps me motivated that every week I'm doing another game and nobody cares how I did the week before. They're judging you solely on the game that you're calling that week. It's interesting you say that because everything you just said, like when I first started, I was so ultra competitive of wanting to beat everybody at everything and this has got to be the number one sure. website and the number one radio show and blah, blah 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 and then like if you even get to that you sort of realize well now what and there is yep. I think there's there is a sense of when I do like a daily radio show that's why doing something and you've done this daily you almost treat every day like okay you got to make sure this one's good and when I have a bad one I don't know how you are if you ever have a game that you think is like a bad game but when I have a bad show, it just eats at me until the next time, so I feel like I can fix it. Are you like that at all? Yep. That, that, that's how very I Very much so. Very, very much so. I get a lot of reps, but even with those reps, not everything is perfect. Not yeah. everything is the way that you planned it. Uh, things don't always come out of your mouth the exact way that you want them to. Uh, you don't always get everything right, by the way, as well. Uh, you hope that you hit a good percentage. You hope that... Uh, people, when they turn on television or radio, have a certain expectation level, and you hope you come through. But no doubt about it, if if I have a bad call or a bad stretch, that will eat away at me, uh, certainly until the next broadcast, and sometimes beyond the next broadcast. I, I'm one of those guys, I live with those mistakes. It, it bugs me to no end. It does me too. And the longer you do it, I am the more you can tell when you screwed up. You know what I mean? Like when you first start, oh. when you first start, you don't even necessarily know you screwed up. But when you've done it well, then it almost eats at you more because you can feel a bad – like I can literally feel when a segment's not working on the air and I just – oh, it just eats at me. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, and because you know too much. You've now exactly. gotten to the point where you do know. You know the difference. And I know in my heart when something is – not right, or the exchange between me and the analyst didn't go as planned, or it didn't match the video or the graphic that was put up by the guys in the truck, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, those little mistakes can eat away at you, but I think that's part of the reason why we do this, because you are walking a tightrope, and there is a sense of excitement. When that red light goes on, it's hard to, to simulate that feeling. That's That's one of the great things that that we are fortunate enough to do in that uh, there isn't a script and it is based on you and your instincts and your skills well Ian eagle cbs sports i appreciate you taking the time to do this we've been uh, tempted to schedule this for a while and it's very nice of you uh to do it and i uh, hope to get to see you well, I hope to at least get to see you at a UK something, but maybe even a Bengals game or something. I feel like you're in Cincinnati quite a bit with your man Jeff Ruby uh, doing games, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm looking for a, a big fat steak in Cincinnati. I'll be there week three, Denver at Cincinnati. Okay, that's so, a good game. Yeah. Well, uh, well I, I'll tell you what. Works, works into your schedule. Might, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, do you If you get into town, I'll call Jeff. We'll get together. I'm sure that, like, it'll be great. We'll have dinner. What do you think? Are you in? Precinct? Uh, me and you. Okay. I think I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good deal. Yeah, I'm Eagle. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Man, it's a pleasure. Great talking to you, buddy. Say hello to Drew, by the way. I definitely will. Send lawyers, guns, and money.